0: Everybody and welcome to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Brooke Jackson. Brooke Jackson is the former regional director over at Ventavia for a few of the clinical trial sites that were involved in the Pfizer COVID nineteen vaccine trials, and um, uh, she has almost around two decades of experience in uh, clinical research auditing and, and that uh, Brooke, that's enough for me. Why don't you take two minutes, introduce us to who you are, and then we'll talk about what it is that brings us here today.
1: Sure. Sure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate um, the opportunity to introduce myself and, and tell the story that I feel belongs to everybody. Um, I, I, have been doing clinical research um, from the coordinating aspects of of trials all the way to managing those. I've been a director of operations for a a small site management organization. I did that for several years, and really, when um, when I left that last position, was looking for something more that would keep me. Home uh, a little, a little more often, and less travel. And so I started looking for another position and found um, one in my area in the Dallas Fort Worth Texas area, and applied and was pretty much Im- immediately offered the position. And that's um, kind of where we'll start, I guess, um, with my time at Ventavia Research Group. So Ventavia Research Group is a, just what I, what I mentioned a moment ago, a clinical research organization. Um, That's, that's how they define themselves, but I would, I would characterize them more as a site management organization. So what they'll do is contract with either a clinical research organization, a CRO or contract organization really. And um, those um, contract research organizations are the ones typically that, Well, contracts with big pharma companies. And Ventavia was hired to manage Pfizer's pivotal phase three trial back in the the fall of 2020.
0: Yeah. And it's um, that obviously that that brings us to this conversation here today. Um, Mm -hmm. As uh, some of you may know, some of you may not know, uh, Brooke is the person that uh, blew the whistle essentially on some issues that were occurring over at ventavia during the clinical trial period while you were there and uh these are things that were reported in the british medical journal and also substantiated by former colleagues of yours as well Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um some of those things included um the data manipulation unblinding of patients adverse event uh follow-ups not being done and some other issues with um what would be considered not good laboratory practice <laughs> um, right. but yeah so why don't you tell us a, a little bit <clears throat> about what it was that you saw that made you think hmm I need to bring this up to someone and then we'll talk about the process that happened after you bringing it up and uh, up to the time, uh, including the dismissal as well.
1: Sure. So my time at Ventavia was was brief. I was only there in total 18 days. Yep. Actually, the first day that, that, that I started was a US holiday. And so on the 7th, which was my start date of September of twenty twenty. Uh, I wasn't on site. I was actually um, just doing some, you know, HR type training, et cetera, reading over protocols. And so my first day on the job was a Tuesday, uh, the 8th of September. And I knew immediately when I walked in that it was going to be a challenge that I was that I was up for, you know, with, like you mentioned, my years of experience I was excited, I was ready to just dive into what, what I needed to. So I, I did that um, with an open mind, knowing that in my job description, that, that, little, that little job description out at the very end where they tell you other job, job duties you know, as, as described or as assigned rather. Yeah, so, there'll
0: be other little things that they sprinkle over the top of your work. Yeah, right. yeah. And
1: that and that was fine. And so my first day I just wanted to get an idea. I was at one of the um one of the three locations that was participating in this particular study in the Pfizer uh, vaccine trial. And I wanted to just get an uh, sorry, that was my dog. That was my <laughs> no dog. I've I got apologize. I have two cats, so I'm used mm, to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the first day I really just wanted to get an idea for the, the feel of the clinic. And uh, I was introduced to some of the staff members, the coordinators that, you know, see, see the patients um, record their visit data, et cetera. So really just to get acquainted with, with the staff in the clinic flow. And so I chose just one of the, the research coordinators to shadow that day. And the first thing that I watched her do was an informed consent of a new uh, patient that was interested in, in participating in the study. So we walk into an exam room and I sit down and, you know, obviously we had the patient's permission that, that i be there, but I watched her initiate this informed consent process. And I really like to point out the fact that informed consent is not just a moment where a patient signs and dates their consent form. It is a process. It takes time. This was not a complicated study, but it, 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 it required a, um, a level of understanding, especially for a patient that has never participated in research before, You know, um, this was a novel vaccine. We were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so it just, um, and I, I can't remember exactly how many pages the informed consent was, but it was pretty lengthy. I want to say, you know, 30 plus pages of information that has to, yeah, it was long that has to be explained to the patient and, you know, them given an opportunity to ask questions, uh, you know, maybe for the, the study doctor that was over to the trial to come in and explain some of those more technical questions or that, that, you know, the study coordinator wouldn't be qualified to answer, but when the patient, um, was brought in and she started the informed consent, it, it, it wasn't a complete informed consent to me. It was basically like, a. Here's the informed consent. Here's where you sign. Here's where I want you to date. Let's let's go. They would frequently, I mean every day that I was there, <clears throat> you know, be scheduling too many patients for the number of staff that we had. So they were really just rushing to to get patients in and out. So as I watched her, you know, giving the informed consent to the patient, it, it wasn't thorough. So I actually stepped in having you know read the protocol um prior to prior to the stay, knew um I'd read read the informed consent. So I just stepped in and and gave a proper informed consent. The patient went on to enroll into the study. And so that was really, sorry, that was a really long answer, but that was the first thing that <clears throat> that I saw when I when I went in. One, how busy the clinic was, two, how understaffed we were and and I guess three, the, the lack of informed consent. Um, so I, I talked with the research coordinator about that, you know, informed consent to me is just, it's so important. It's, it's the first thing that, that we do when a patient enters uh, into a study and it's, uh, a process that continues at every turn. We want to make sure that that patient is still informed, that they still um, want to participate in the study. And that goes, again, from before they enroll to the completion of of the study.
0: Okay. So that was the first moment that sort of pricked your ears up to, hey, there's maybe a couple of the things that in your role uh, as part of your duty was something that you would then highlight to be cleaned up, essentially. Guys, there's there's some issues here that I think we need to address. You'd pass that on and you guys would create some form of quality control to um, ensure that that's done adequately, shall we say. Of course.
1: Right? Of course.
0: And then I, I think to anyone listening, um, can you maybe highlight a couple of things from this particular trial in terms of informed consent that you think should or could have been mentioned to the participant or participants that maybe weren't emphasized or, or maybe weren't put across to someone who was participating.
1: Sure. Gosh, the, there's, there's so many. Um, maybe safety. pick two or three. Yeah. Safety. Um, you know, is, is the one thing that, that jumps out at me, uh, risks of participating. The, the patient's, um, not obligation, but <clears throat> what they're required to do, um, the study visits that they are to come in for There, one of the, one of the big things was in the study, they were either given a provision device, or we downloaded an app on their phone. And that was to, to track any adverse events that they, that they experienced during their participation. And that was, again, uh, uh, there were several patients that, that I read on, um, that didn't even get trained on how to use that device. So <clears throat> those are a few things that, that stuck out to me again, safety, um, risk of participating in the study, um, you know, uh, required visits. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Self-reporting of adverse events, I think, is also something that's probably um, an important thing to have in a study of this magnitude. As something that, if everything goes well, would have and has been pumped out to everybody. Quite simply, okay. So then we press a little further forward. This is after your first day or so in in clinic. What other things were there that stuck out to you? Because after you did essentially blow the whistle because you made some reports to um, your colleagues and felt that they weren't being maybe taken as seriously or maybe acted upon you then decided to take it to the next level uh, and um, send some information off to the FDA and shortly Mm -hmm. after that is the the termination point so maybe if you can highlight the things that further, pricked your ears up a little bit, and then mm-hmm. were the things that you decided after reporting to your colleagues, you then decided, actually, we have to take this a step further if it's not being sure. acted
1: on. Yeah. So I, I kind of mentioned this a, a moment ago, the lack of, of staff. So we had, I'm trying to remember exactly, f- five exam rooms, I believe, and about that many clinical research coordinators and the clinical research coordinators are really essential in the screening and the enrollment and the management of the study participants from <laughs> beginning to end, you know, the, the principal investigator, the study doctor that's over the trial is really there to manage, um, eligible manage the patient, but to review initially the eligibility criteria to do um you know those things that are out of our scope um like a physical exam for example or an assessment of a laboratory value or an adverse event so they manage those more um uh those types of of assessments and <clears throat> so the number of patients that Ventavia was enrolling was just it was too many for the staff that we had <coughs> Excuse me. So, the number of patients, lack of staff, lack of space was was something else that was a concern of mine. You know, it, a part of uh, Pfizer's protocol after a patient's injected with either the placebo or the vaccine, which we only only the person giving the vaccine at, at, at this point should have known what the patient was actually receiving. They prepare it, they, um, inject it and they manage that one aspect and that is it. So, um, this just, it drives me crazy to even to, to go back and even think about this, but because of the, the space, especially after a patient was vaccinated, the, the vaccinator would take the patient out of their exam room and put them wherever there was space for them to be <clears throat> our waiting rooms were typically full and the exam rooms were full and the, they would be put in, put in the hallway with absolutely zero medical oversight. Uh, supervision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No medical oversight. No, no privacy. They were literally sitting in folding chairs in the hallway or, in the reception area or in our laboratory area, within the clinic. I mean, we're we're just putting them anywhere we had a spot. So to open up that exam room, so the next patient that wanted to enroll could, you know, come on through
0: seen. and yeah, take a yeah. seat and roll up the sleeve.
1: Exactly. exactly. This seems
0: more um, a massive protocol issue if there's no supervision. Um, but it does in a way I feel like something that could have quite adequately been resolved on site without further um, uh, without need to go um, to the FDA for example um do, do you know what I mean it, it seems like oh, something I that tried. relatively I speaking they, they should have been able to do. There, right?
1: Yes, yes. I, you know, I I tried many times talking to the the members of our, our leadership team. It was myself. There was another regional director. We had a director of quality control. We had a, a director of operations. We had a um, um, two managing members and a CEO. So every morning at eight o'clock, we would have a meeting to discuss action items. I mean, it, it varied day to day, but on this call, we discussed these issues every single day and they were very, I I don't know how to, how to describe it. Just, I guess I would say supportive, you know, they would, um, Bring in other coordinators from other locations that weren't weren't as busy to help in certain circumstances. They would really push, uh, praise, you know, thank you guys so much. Be sure to thank your coordinators, get them breakfast, get them lunch, get them dinner, you know, make sure, um, that, that they're staying on track and offering bonuses even for, um, the extra time that they put in on top of any overtime that they would receive. But yeah. We talked about these issues every day yeah. and they acknowledged them and they were, they were truly, I, I am okay saying this because there were some things that Ventavia did well. Um, they, they tried initially to bring in more people. They went, um, uh, on a hiring, um, frenzy, I guess. So they were trying to, to bring in more people because they understood that they were just severely understaffed. So, you know, that, that they did well, they advertised for their study well, but they did way more things wrong than, than they did. Right. And they knew that, and they knew that I was very vocal about what I was seeing, what I, what I brought to their attention. Um, and in the beginning, when I would, when I would bring up these things, for example, a lot of them administrative type things, you know, our, our SOPs or our COVID preparedness plan. Um, they, they, they were just supportive of, um, but they were things that, that I could only bring to their attention. I could only tell you that your SOP doesn't make sense and that we're not following it. Here's my suggestion based on regulatory guidelines and good clinical practice and and all those things that we spend so many hours, you know, training for. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Um, But then if if we go a little bit further, there were some other things that you'd mentioned, such as um, the adverse events, uh, the fact that there was an app for that where patients could do it. Mm -hmm. but there's also the element of there were some adverse event follow-up issues as well. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit
1: about that? Sure. Well, it goes, um, speaks directly to the staffing. They were busy seeing patients and Ventavia was, was paid on a per patient basis. Mainly. Um, I never had an opportunity to look at their contracts. We had, um, somebody that that was in charge of that, that person was actually the mother of our chief executive officer. So she handled all the finances. We never looked. Interesting. Yes. I never saw a budget one time, but in my experience, I've negotiated contracts, budgets many times. So in my experience, it's, it's on a a per patient basis mainly. So that was their goal was to enroll as many patients as possible as quickly as possible with Pfizer right behind them, pushing every step of the way. And that's kind of, you know, we can, we can talk about that a a little more, but yeah, the uh, adverse event follow-up didn't happen frequently because there just were not enough people to manage those.
0: Can you maybe talk to us about uh, some of those adverse events? Are you aware of any specifics that you're allowed to talk about?
1: I know of a f- I know of a few specific, but this was such a uh, so widespread. We were receiving calls from patients that were not able to get a hold of the site directly because they weren't able to check their voicemail or their emails. So these patients would become frustrated and they would reach out directly to Pfizer. And then there was a Pfizer uh, employee that would email the sites or call, call the site. And that's at that point when they would finally be managed or when we would receive emails directly from, from ICON or from Pfizer begging for information or follow-up from adverse events and, but even, even serious adverse events, there was one that just sticks out in my mind, um, so clearly. And it was 11 days since the patient had reported a serious adverse event and not one time had the site reached out oh. to speak to the patient. Yes. And I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't, think it's necessary to go into, into the details of, of what what adverse events or what serious adverse events. The point is, is they were reported and some of them not, but they were infrequently followed up on. And I just can't even imagine how many were reported by the patient, but not not captured. Not followed up. Yeah. And not followed up.
0: I mean I'm totally with you there as there's the, um, the young girl who was part of the uh, trial uh, process whose serious adverse event was noted as a normal adverse event as stomach pain despite the fact that she was then uh, wheelchair bound and unable to at times feed or clothe herself so
1: yeah, you're speaking of of Maddie Degary.
0: That's the one. And, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And she was in in Pfizer's Pfizer study. In Pfizer's and, trial. Yeah. And you're exactly right. I can't I, I don't remember the the actual diagnosis, but ba- basically
0: stomach pain uh, is what our functional remember. Yeah.
1: functional abdominal pain. That was it. You know, yeah. From, mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Yeah. So this this is for, for anyone listening, I think this is why there's so much importance on the reporting of both adverse and serious adverse events. You know, like you say, we don't need to speak into specifics of the one that you've mentioned, but to give an idea of one that's in the public domain, that yeah. that is one <clears throat> that has been noted and has been made public as a serious adverse event that was improperly reported, and th- there's no other two ways about it. Right. Another thing that you <clears throat> mentioned was, there was some data manipulation going on as well. Are you able to speak to that? I think sure. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll go over that first. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So I would say around around the fourteenth of September when I really had more of an opportunity to start the internal auditing process is when a lot of the things started kind of making sense to me. And I, I was, I was going through each of, of these charts and some of the things that I found were again, back to the informed consent, just missing signatures, missing dates, which was just sloppy, right? I mean, that, that, that's what it is sloppy. But as I, As I was going through the chart further, I would notice that there would be missing blood pressure, um, missing temperatures, missing signatures on inclusion, exclusion criteria, which, you know, a patient, when they're enrolling into a study per Pfizer's protocol, you had to meet specific criteria. You had to ensure that the patient. Um, qualified based on exactly exactly met every inclusion criteria and met none of the exclusion criteria and then you have to have a qualified medical professional sign off prior to uh, enrolling the participant in the study so at that point once that would be done then they would be randomized and we would go from there but looking through these charts and there were hundreds of them. So this, again, was done at three three study sites. I was the director of, of two of those. One was in Keller, one was in Fort Worth, Texas, and the other was in Houston, Texas. So the, the second regional director was the one that was managing the, the Fort Worth location. But the same problems existed there when I would um, audit or monitor the the second location of mine, I was finding the same thing. So informed consent errors, horrible, uh, study assessments that were not being done. Label, uh, samples that were mislabeled. Just think there were so many things that were being done incorrectly. And as I was taking my findings, I was, I was, I was overwhelmed. And I've been doing this for a long time and it doesn't, it, it, it does take a lot to overwhelm me, but I was just, their patients were coming in and, and follow-up visits needed to be done. And we only had five coordinators and we needed 15. So I'm, I'm taking these concerns directly to my, my direct manager, which was the director of operations And she was overwhelmed. I mean, she was doing the same thing that I was doing at one site, but at another site because we were just trying to, you know, to catch up. And she told me very frequently, and I just got so tired, uh, so tired of hearing it. But put it on a list. Put your concerns down on a list, and eventually we'll get to it. And so I started making this list, and on the 20, the 25th of September, she she calls me into this meeting and I, I get upset and I'm crying and she's just, that's another story, but I told her I have 39 different concerns just on this, just on this list that you told me to create. And it wasn't just 39 things that I found. These were 39 areas of concern and problems that I'd been finding, not just on one patient, but on the majority of patients. And it was speed and it was haste. It was a lack of experience. They were hiring people that were not qualified to be in the positions that they were in. And it was just, when I think back about it, it just, it makes me so mad. It pisses me off to be honest that Ventavia allowed this to go on for so long, but <clears throat> it wasn't just Ventavia, okay? So ICON had a responsibility here too, and as did Pfizer. They knew that there was missing data. They knew that these things were going on and they did nothing about it except push Ventavia to enroll more, enroll more, enroll more.
0: Yeah. Um- and and from one of the bits that I saw um, from one of the released exhibits from the uh, trial that was recently essentially <laughs> abandoned where the U S government had decided not to proceed um, was that you'd brought this up on multiple occasions. Was that, you know, there is the, the element of multiple times your concerns were raised and, you know, this idea of missing data is quite frankly worrying, considering that this has now been um, widely used. Uh, aside from missing signatures or uh, blood pressure, was there any pertinent clinical data uh, to your knowledge that was missing?
1: Sure. I mean, <clears throat> one thing that, that, happened, it it happened on like just a few days after, uh, so I would say around the 16th of September of 2020 when we're going through and auditing these charts and making our list, but never determining what the root cause was. I mean, I, I could tell you it was a lack of staff, lack of training, lack of experience. We never, we never did anything about it. And on or around the 16th, it was discovered that the randomization scheme was being placed in every participant's ch- chart, their file. And what that does is unblind the patient to anybody who looks at that information. So, again, the only person that should have known what the patient got in terms of the vaccination or the oh, placebo, placebo was the person that was preparing and injecting. And when you unblind somebody, you know, i I've, I've had to be very careful about talking about the safety, the efficacy, what unblinding does, because I'm not a lab coded scientist. That's been pointed out multiple times, but I am an expert at what I do. And I know what unblinding does and what it does is inject a bias. And I always, I I always try to find an example of a a way to help someone that doesn't understand clinical trials. Like I do understand what, what that potential bias can, can do. And that is, you know, for this particular trial, the patient, um, gets their injection a week later, 10 days later, contacts the clinical trial site and says, I'm sick. What do I do? Well, We talk to the physician and the physician opens up the chart and they're looking through the chart and they see this patient got the vaccine. We know the vaccine. We've been told that the vaccine works really well. So it's unlikely that that patient has COVID. It's probably just something else viral. We don't need to test him or her. And so they, he doesn't, he or she doesn't. The doctor does not test because they know that patient got the vaccine and they think that it's working. But the patient actually does have COVID, let's just say. So that patient has been vaccinated, gets a, an infection, a COVID infection, but we never test. So we never know. So it's never reported. So that speaks to the overall one efficacy but also the safety. What if that illness had nothing to do with, you know, the symptoms of COVID, but rather the symptoms of the injection. So that's kind of just an example of what unblinding actually, or unmasking some, some people refer to it as what it does to, you know, the integrity of the overall study and the unblinding happened in every single one of the enrolled participants from the beginning of enrollment through the middle of September when that was realized i'm sorry did you have a question All right, go 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 when that was realized <clears throat> the very next morning this was on the 17th i'm i'm for sure about that date during our morning call I made the recommendation that Bentavia immediately stop enrolling into the study. We were putting patient um, safety. Didn't matter. It mattered to me. So I said, we have got to stop enrolling patients into the study until we are able to get a full understanding of exactly what we are doing and what we've done. Per Pfizer's own protocol, when someone is unblinded in the study, they should have immediately stopped enrolling, and contacted Pfizer. We didn't do that. We realized that we had unblinded every single participant, potentially. I'm not saying everyone was unblinded, but people that had access to the randomization scheme had access to the patients and therefore the data should should not have been used in their overall analysis of the study. So instead of doing that, Instead of contacting Pfizer, they decided to come up with a message that we would give to Pfizer, why we were going to pause enrollment or stop enrollment that, that message, they wanted to be consistent through all throughout the, all three study sites, (laughs) excuse me. And that message was to tell Pfizer that we were in the most perfect place That we had met our bandwidth, that with the upcoming visit twos and visit threes, that we were in a perfect place to just kind of slow things down. And on top of that, they wanted to start bringing in friends and family members to go through these patient charts and take out that randomization scheme. That was evidence that we had unblinded all of these, these clinic patients, all these patients.
0: So just to clarify, if a patient saw their file, they'd be able to know what way they were. Like you say, because it's a double-blinded trial, the only person that should have known was the one delivering the injection. But if they had something, be they in the placebo or in the intervention group, when the doctor the physician was going to review their file. The physician would also then be unblinded, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, and that just, just to doubly clarify in normal instances, that wouldn't be the
1: case. The gold standard in research is for studies to be randomized, double blind, controlled.
0: Yeah. And like, like you mentioned, just to punctuate the point even further, the fact that the physician would then find out as they're reviewing the patient file, rather than just seeing they got injection A versus injection B, they would then know, hey, okay, this is the community injection, so we know there might be some um, flu-like symptoms following it, but it can't be COVID because it's super effective from our phase two. So this is where the issue of a lack of testing comes into it. If I remember, I'm going to say that I'm going to say around 400 and something patients weren't tested, uh, from the clinical trial group, despite showing symptoms. Right. Yes. And
1: I don't remember the exact number. Um, I probably have it here somewhere, but, but it was in the hundreds.
0: Yes. And that could quite significantly change the data given that during or the, Pfizer release after six months of the trial data showed around 15 people or something like that catching COVID. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if there's hundreds that for uh, whatever reason were decided not to have been tested, that could quite significantly shift the goalposts. Um,
1: Absolutely. Leaving yeah. that, leaving the determination, it's it's the design of the study, which was, was flawed from, from the very beginning. Um. You know, just just that one principal investigator decision to test or not to test. Add in those reasons that they weren't tested, whatever those were. Now couple in unblinding of a thousand plus patients. And that that has the potential to change that that overall efficacy so much and so much so that they may not have even met the required efficacy which i i, I believe it was
0: 50% yeah something okay. like that from what i remember and <clears throat> i think something worth noting here is uh a lot of people Um, when they speak to this situation uh, in an attempt to debunk, they say, yeah, but the Fatavia site was only three sites and it only had a thousand people. So, you know, how much uh, would it have really affected things? But just looking at the numbers there from X amount of people not being tested um, despite showing some kind of symptom, do you think that that's a fair rebuttal at all?
1: Absolutely not because they don't understand. And it's, I, I don't mean to criticize anybody because, you know, looking at a trial that's enrolled 44,000 people, when you talk about <clears throat> such egregious conduct at just three, because it's just three and it's just a thousand out of 44, it, it doesn't, you know, doesn't probably wash. seem like it doesn't. All right but if you if you understand how they calculated their their efficacy and and how the trial was designed it certainly matters it matters so much it was i mean look look at that look at how how serious i mean it was a world a worldwide problem it wasn't just you know in the state of texas it was Everywhere we were looking yeah. at, at rolling out this vaccine to millions and millions of people, at this and stage, it at four least point
0: something billion. Yeah, sure. Yeah,
1: yeah but it, 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 for me, understanding research like like I do, it warranted an inspection at least from the FDA when I made my complaint. I'm an expert. I'm credible. I tried. To bring it to the attention of the other members of the management team, I made an anonymous complaint to Pfizer in September, and I made a complaint to the FDA, and no one has ever done anything about it, and that also pisses me off.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting bit there, right? You made the complaint... Uh... <clears throat> a few times and you also brought it to the FDA to Pfizer and yet nothing to date. Uh, we're talking now on the 18th of Feb, 2022, two years past the date. Um, nothing has been done. There's been no follow-up in that regard.
1: Not from the, not from the food and drug administration. Uh, you know, I, I, left, I didn't leave. I got fired yeah. from Ventavia, <laughs> uh, on the, on the 25th of September of 2020. About six hours after I made the determination to follow the complaint. File it. Yeah. So yeah. six hours later, I'm fired. And that was under the pretext that I was not a good fit. And I know that I wasn't a good fit because I wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. And that was fraudulent. I wasn't going to participate. I wasn't going to be a part of that. And well, it makes me sad.
0: Yeah. Essentially there was a, a lot of cleanup that they would have rather, if it yeah, was addressed, yeah. it would have been a lot further down the it's line. Funny
1: that, it's funny that you say cleanup. Cause I think that's really when Ventavia's attitude towards me changed. You know, it, it was praise from day one through uh, probably the 21st of September You know, I I was invited to a call. The title of this call was COVID 001 cleanup call. And I declined the call because I know what was going to be discussed. And that was more ways to cover up all the things that we were finding. And there was, there were so many, I think in, in my FTA complaint, I listed 14 different things that kind of in the moment stuck out to me. I was not hesitant to file the, the complaint at all, but I I were, I was scared. I, 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 I really felt like at that point, once I, once I filed the complaint that I was going to lose my job, I was actually worried, uh, for good reason, obviously, but warned also from one of the site managers that, that, um, that I was speaking to one day, she said, Brooke, if you go forward with speaking out against Vince they are going to fire you. It's happened before it's happened since I've left. <clears throat> um, they, they have some major problems, major problems going on there, but in the FDA complaint I made on the 25th listed out just the concerns that, that, Were on the top of my mind, and and I remembered the email so clearly. And it says, "It is without hesitation that I am reporting concerns about patient safety." And I go in to talk about that first. And there are many things that that I could have added to that list. But these again were just kind of what was on the top of my head. Filed that at about nine o'clock in the morning, and again a few hours later, I'm, I'm canned.
0: <clears throat> just, just by happenstance, just <clears throat> magically six hours magically. later, which, you know, brings also some other, uh, issues at hand. Cause didn't you say it was anonymous, um, when you'd spoken to Pfizer oh, spoken to oh no, anonymous to Pfizer, but to the FDA, was that also anonymized? Oh, no, no. Okay. So
1: no, I called actually first and spoke to a representative from The FDA. And she told me where to go on their website and what to do. And and I followed her instruction. And so they had my email address. I gave them my phone number. I wanted to talk to them. I had a lot of things to talk to them about. But that happens eventually on the 29th of September of 2020. They emailed me back. And I spoke to an investigator or an inspector cannon and miss cannon. And I spoke for about an hour in length, um, and in detail about every single concern. uh, concern. Mm -hmm. Well, not every single concern, but the, the, the ones that were, that I highlighted in the email and we spoke to them in detail. I told her that I was, I was fired. She was very sympathetic to that. And I had full confidence in the food and drug administration and the, um, the group that was going to, I, I thought investigate, I was like, yes, you know, I, I felt okay that they were going to swoop in and go to Ventavia, inspect the site. And, and these patients were, um, I mean, I don't even know what I expected to happen with the patients, but at least for the, the integrity of the data, so many things to happen. I just thought that they were going to go in and, and make it okay. And they still to this day have, have not inspected Ventavia's site. And I know that Ventavia continues to enroll in, in studies and September of, of 2021, I was sent some information. It was, Given to me, and I looked at this information. And as of September of 21, they were enrolling or um, in follow up in 40 different studies. And it's not just Pfizer vaccine study that they're participating in, and <clears throat> every cohort, if you will, of adolescent patients, of children, of pregnant women. And I've seen all of that data and it looks exactly the same as when I was there. They're not following up on adverse events. The principal investigator is not overseeing the clinical trial as he should because he's busy in the hospital system working and doing endoscopies. So he's very infrequently on site. So they're, they're just continuing to do these studies. These so Rolling important the same studies, tricks. Yeah. same tricks, same crap data same fraud in every single one of their studies and the fda is allowing this to continue and i i want to know when they're gonna finally somebody has to, got to stop ventavia from doing what they're doing these people are are, are in danger
0: yeah i mean it's almost as if someone uh, some people might think they even got <coughs> rewarded for this kind of behaviour, as they got more studies out of Pfizer after the yeah. out of the back of this. Um, it, one th- one question that's sprung to mind a few times for myself, and I'm sure others have felt this as well. One, why has it taken so long for this to come out, and and two, why is it that to the best of my knowledge to date you're probably the <clears throat> only person that's that's spoken up surely other people have seen this and you've mentioned that the colleagues have have spoken to you about it
1: mm-hmm. it's taken so long to come out so after the, after the 25th after i filed the the complaint with the fta i i wanted to give them an opportunity to to What they should have done, and go into Ventavia and and inspect the site. And when I saw that that wasn't going to happen, my attorney, who was representing me for wrongful termination, because Ventavia fired me for
0: doing your job. Yeah,
1: doing my job. Thank you. Yes. So I had I had that that um you know. Kind of just, it was pending. I was, I was speaking to an attorney about wrongful termination, <clears throat> but then he says, I want you to, I want you to talk to this other attorney. I think that this is so important and what they've done is so egregious that you have more than just a wrongful termination lawsuit. This is some, uh, a, a vaccine that the government is going to pay for. These are government funds that are going to be used. And if you truly want an investigation to ensue and be done correctly, you need to have the help of the United States government. And there is an action that you can <clears throat> pursue a key TAM action, a, a lawsuit that I file on behalf of the United States government. So after meeting with this attorney and telling him my story, they they were like, yes, this is, this vaccine is misbranded. This vaccine is the data that's been used in this vaccine is fraudulent. You have all the receipts, you have the proof. I, I have, I had everything that you, I still have it not, not on me. I've had to put it in different places because I'm, I'm afraid, but <clears throat> yeah, I had, I had everything to prove exactly what I needed to show. Um, everything to back up the claims that you've made. Absolutely. Not just me. It wasn't just me. It was also other 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 employees at Ventafia that have come forward. There's five of us now.
0: Okay. They
1: will not come forward and speak publicly. I think that they're afraid. I think that they don't want to lose their jobs. And this is this has been tough. It's been it's been difficult for me to be the one that. That's saying Pfizer's data is isn't what they say it is. It's um, you're having to hard. bear
0: the brunt of of any repercussions, any blowback. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. having to be the face of it. I think you know that's important to note. Um, people are afraid reason- to lose their jobs, and you did sure. lose your job as a result of it. And now you've mm-hmm. mentioned that that you've had to disperse the information and and put it in other places because there's an element of fear you're scared mm-hmm. maybe you could if you're okay to talk to us about that
1: yeah maybe maybe in a second I'll, I'll talk to you about that I um you know when I want to talk to your audience about why it took so long for for this information to come out it wasn't because I was I I didn't come forward I came forward each time, each minute that I saw something going on that was nefarious, I, I came forward. I had trust in a process. Um, first, the scientific one, I then trusted the regulatory agencies to do their job. I thought that the FDA was going to, and not that I, I'm just so naive that I think that there's not corruption in in government and, and regulatory bodies, but I just had faith that the FCA was, was going to go in and again and and take care of this. And and when they did not and, and I, I ended up deciding to file the, the case I, I did so knowing that once I filed it, it was going to immediately go under a seal and I would not be able to talk about it. I had to, I had to think about that. Uh, As I knew we, you know, I mean, by this time it was, I don't know, November and I knew emergency use authorization was coming. And so I, it was a tough decision to, to, to make, to allow that to happen. But I just. I was told that this was the way to to have it investigated, to have uh, Ventavia investigated, not just Ventavia, but Icon and Pfizer because they're they're responsible as well. So when that case was filed, everything, um, I couldn't talk about it anymore. And it went under seal initially for 60 days. And again, I just was so certain that in that 60 days that they were... Calvary is see- coming. Yes. Yes. That the department of justice was going to, you know, direct the, um, OIG and all, uh, all these different, um, departments involved were just, were going to, um, investigate and <clears throat> we were going to, we were going to see the truth. And after that initial 60 days, they requested an extension of six months. And I didn't want to give it, but I, I was pressured to give it. I have email after email, after email, every single, like every couple weeks, every month, following up with these attorneys, I, you know, warned them that I wasn't going to be quiet forever. And. After the second six month extension that expired in September, the end of September of of 2020, no investigation had had pursued. So I said, screw it, ma'am, I have got this has just gone on long enough. And now, not that every age group matters, but the vaccine was coming after our children and. I just couldn't be, I couldn't be silent anymore. My former attorney, the the ones who helped me file this lawsuit originally warned me. He said, Brooke, if you, if you go public with your information, the government's going to come after you.
0: Hmm.
1: And I said, well, let them come. Cause I'm not, gonna be, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be quiet anymore. Let them come. I don't care what they do to me. And so <clears throat> two days later, he, he dropped me as his client and left me without representation in this case. And so I've since found, found another attorney, uh, Robert, Robert Barnes, who's, who's helping me move, move this case forward. But in, you know, that time, I, I I knew that I couldn't, um, I couldn't take my story, my information, my evidence, to the mainstream media. So I took it to the British Medical Journal. And I knew the British Medical Journal was reputable. They would do their diligence in reviewing the the evidence that I brought forward, and that's exactly what they did. They vetted me. There were weeks and weeks and weeks of them doing what they do best and then reporting on it. And so that story, that publication was out on November
0: 2nd of 2021. Yeah. And I remember reading it and just being absolutely gobsmacked and thinking to myself, Mm -hmm. much like you uh, thought to yourself when you you were attempting to get the FDA involved that any minute now, the cavalry is going to come riding in and say, listen, we have to put a stop. On things and mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> look over this data and and see if the concerns are valid, and see what we need to do as a result of these things that have been brought up and brought to our attention. Because it it essentially reframes the whole clinical trial into a different light, and it's not a very good light. It's not a very flattering light for the for
1: the it's clinical fraud. trial. It's um, fraud.
0: yeah. Yeah, no two ways about it.
1: There's not, no.
0: no. So I think that, that brings us to the to the next question. You had your lawyer who helped bring this case forward, then decide almost at the drop of a hat to drop you as a client. And then you're, you're now with Robert Barnes. And you've also mentioned the fact that, you know, you are afraid there is some fear there. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about that? As I I think people may initially think that that's just hyperbole, but for your lawyer to say, actually, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take two steps this way and good luck on your journey. And for you to have to put your evidence that you've gathered in, in separate spots in order to ensure that it's safe, it's a bit of a scary thought. It's something out of a movie almost.
1: In October on, on October 9th of 2020, after the FDA complaint was filed, after the inspector calls me back, mm-hmm. Pfizer actually called me back too. I'd made a couple of attempts from an unknown number to to call them a, um, a few days prior prior to my <coughs> terminate <coughs> excuse me, prior to my termination to, let them know what I, what I was finding. And I never, I never called Pfizer from my own personal cell phone. I never called them from the office. I always did. So like at night at home and the the calls I made were never answered and I never left a message and eventually, you know, just kind of gave up on, on, Contacting them and getting a hold of them because I'd already decided to go to the FDA. So, <clears throat> on the 26th of so the day after I'm fired from Ventavia, the person I was trying to reach at Pfizer does call me back, and he calls me back on this number that um, belonged to my my husband's work at the time. So it didn't like list your name um, when when you call. So I, I you know, wasn't. I was I was pretty sure that they wouldn't be able to to find out who I was based on based on that that anonymous number or they shouldn't have been able to. <clears throat> and when I talked to Arturo who was the site liaison, he was a direct Pfizer employee. I did so anonymously. I didn't tell him my name, I didn't tell him what site I worked for. My conversation with him was brief. It was like 15 minutes. And that conversation pretty much mirrored what was in my FDA complaint. I went over briefly my, my main concerns, which were the patient safety, the falsification of data, the fabrication of data and the unblinding, which, which had the, the, um, you know, potential to do so much. And, um, did I mention adverse events, serious adverse events, not being followed up on. So it was, but it was a quick call was my point. And he asked me my name and I I just told him, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to give that information. I I, I'm just not take my anonymous complaint and and
0: do what you got to do with it,
1: do what you're going to do. And so that was that I never heard from Arturo again, except, um, on October 9th of 2020 on my personal cell phone, I started getting a call from an anonymous or like a number that I didn't have saved. It was, I didn't recognize it. And so the first time that, that my phone rang and I see this number, I just click the red button and sent it to voicemail. Cause I didn't, I didn't know who it was, but they called right back. And I did the same thing. I just pressed the red button and hung up and didn't think anything of it. And so they called again. And I'm like, what in the hell? Like who's call- Who's calling me? But my, we were in the garage and uh, I was with my husband. We were playing darts and he was like, just don't, just don't answer it. So I did it. Those three calls just back to back repeated. And then I get a text message from that same number. I should have had this up already. Cause I, I could read it to you directly. <clears throat> Fantastic. So on October 9th, I get a text message and it says, "Miss Jackson. I'm calling you on behalf of Pfizer. We would like to talk to you about the concerns you have relayed about a clinical trial site. Would you please be willing to talk and give us some additional information? Thanks. Mark Barnes. And in parentheses, he has attorney for Pfizer. And when I saw that, my first thought was, how did this man get my phone number? And so that's exactly my, my message back to him. How did you get my number, Mr. Barnes? And he says from a Pfizer colleague to whom you spoke Arturo, he and others asked me to follow up. And my reply was interesting being that I never shared my name with Dr. Alfaro or Arturo who's Dr. Alfaro? And he says, Apologies, I am just assuming your name, but I don't know it for sure. And I said, hmm, now my interest is really piqued. You mentioned others, Mr. Barnes. Who are you referring to? And he said, Other compliance colleagues at Pfizer who are very concerned about the um, issues you raised with Arturo. And he goes on to, would you please be willing to speak? Um, You know, just so you know, the door is open. If you want to relay any additional information, the more we can know um, from concerned people, then the more quickly we can understand things and correct them as needed. So one might... look at this text message thread and think, Oh, it's just Pfizer
0: innocent a right?
1: diligent. Yeah, yeah. They're just doing their, <clears throat> their job and their diligence and making sure that they're following up on a complaint, but for him to use my cell phone number as a way of contacting me to know my name for me to ask him, how did you get my, you know, how do you know my name for him to just assume it is so it's scary. It it's scares unnerving. Me. Yeah. It is very unnerving. And the mention of others, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe my mind shouldn't have gone there, but it's, it certainly did. And there hasn't been a day that I have not looked over my shoulder and thought, what else is Pfizer capable of?
0: No, I completely wholeheartedly mm-hmm. understand that. And I mean, the, the other thing is, what's a lawyer doing asking what your concerns are surely that should be someone on on the same level as um their uh, arturo who's you know in charge in the, the clinical sites or something like that because that's that's you know who it's relevant for the fact that how about lawyer... you send
1: me something uh, how about you send me a professional letter Email? And, and request yeah. a, a meeting um but again, I mean, it brings, it brings up the question who, who gave Mark Barnes, my phone number, yeah. how did he get my cell phone number? Did he get it from Ventavia? Did he get it from the FDA? I, I, I really, I really have, have got to, got to find that out. I just, I now know who, who Mark Barnes is and, um, from another podcast that I did with someone who used to work for the FBI, and I know that he's not a very nice person. He's been described as the cleanup guy.
0: Not the kind of person you want phoning and texting you. Um, Mm -hmm. No.
1: No. But I just still have so much, um, I guess, faith in... the the truth, um, prevailing and that's kind of just where I have to, where I have to put it, you know, I, I, I hope my story inspires more people to come forward. If they have information about any of the vaccines, not just Pfizer, I don't have, you know, I don't, I, you know, um, I think they're. I, I, I look at the whole, whole, you know, even my career, I mean, it, I've considered making changes because I just have lost so much faith, but I, I trust, I trusted this process. I, I was able to have my children through, um, science I did in vitro fertilization. So without that, without science and clinical trials, I wouldn't have my children. So I'm just Data integrity is, is so important to me and clinical trials are important to me, but they have to be done properly. And I'm not saying that things and mistakes don't happen. You know, there, there are bad people out there, but you know, there are good people out there too. And ones that care about research and I I'm one of those, and I just want <clears throat> a couple things, accountability, and I don't know what this looks like yet but more regulatory oversight and clinical trials that has got to happen it's got to happen
0: i think for me it's comforting that there are people like yourself that are there that are involved in the clinical trials in some way or another and um in good conscience, come forward with the information that they have. And that's no slight to anybody that hasn't. Um, everyone has their their reasons for what they do. And like you said, there are people with genuine fears, much like yourself. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there are reasons people don't step up to, to say something one way or the other. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you've decided not to step out. And like you say, you're a firm believer in, in science and the scientific method. I think that's also important to emphasize here as you're involved in the scientific method. And if you weren't a believer in it, you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be there doing what you're doing and be that for your job or be that in the course of action that you've decided to take as a result of fraudulent data as a result of a fraudulent clinical trial study. Oh, yeah. So but it's also encouraging that you've mentioned that there are other colleagues that are stepping up or former colleagues that are stepping up to share their information as well. And because of people like yourself who have decided to take a massive leap of faith in coming forward, hopefully the truth will um find its way out. Well, the thing
1: current... there the thing there is the truth is already there, right? It's not just Definitely. my words no. and this is something that I kind of, you know, point out to people who, you know, talk talk bad about, you know, the British medical journal and there's, you know, anti-vaxxers and and all of this nonsense. It wasn't me that the BMJ is defending or you know, it's not my information and my stuff. It's evidence that you know cannot be denied. These are internal documents. These are things that I handed over. So they're reporting on a story, period, not on a person. My beliefs and are, are mine, and to be frank, are, are the business of no one's um, except me. And that that's kind of been frustrating to watch. But you know, I, I've I'm able to talk about you know, things that I wasn't able to talk about so many months ago, you know, there was suppression of the BMJ story, censorship, fact check, whatever you want to call it. But now I can, I can speak to whoever I want, especially now that the seal has, has been lifted. The United States government is declining to do anything about what I've alleged and so I'm, with the help of Mr. Barnes, uh, Robert Barnes, <laughs> not the Mark Barnes. No relation. Moving, <laughs> no relation, no. Are, are moving forward with this lawsuit. I, I guess I'm not as confident as I, well, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't know what I think. I guess I have good days and I have bad days. Some days I'm so sure that, this information is, is finally going to be dealt with appropriately. And then other days I'm like, man, I don't even want to live in this country anymore, but where would I go?
0: Yeah, it's true. It's all coming out. Eh? Uh, but I think to your, your point of confident, not confident, it, it gave me, uh, or maybe it gives you some comfort. And um, the, Pfizer stakeholder brief that went out recently I don't know if you've come across that at all
1: yes I have
0: yeah where they say that there might be some unfavorable data coming forward which may affect the share prices and whatnot so I
1: -hmm.
0: I think in a way whoever reads that there's one way to interpret that which is unfavorable data means that unfavorable exactly that unfavorable data (laughs) so I think it's coming more to the fore, and you know, fingers see. crossed uh, that, that things go go in the right direction with this.
1: Yeah, I- yeah. There, there are many people, many groups of, you know, physicians and 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 not that are are coming forward. And I know with the the FDA lawsuit and the documents that are are coming out you know, as, as part of that, as part of that suit are going to be helpful. I've had an opportunity to look at some of those document releases from the FDA, from the 18th of January and the, I believe it was the 31st of January, 28th of January, um, that, that were released from the FDA. There were some of those documents related directly to the Ventavia sites. So, I'm looking at those, I'm studying those, I'm building spreadsheets on those, and I can say with 100% confidence that the case report forms, the data that was released from the FDA does not match what is at the clinical trial site.
0: So things are worse than reported, than, than what's being released.
1: <laughs> what is being released does not match the documentation that I have seen Related to the same patients, and that's what um, I know. We're kind of running close. We're running close on time, or, or maybe we're not. I can I can keep going, but
0: you, you tell me. We got time. <clears throat> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So during a clinical trial, when a patient comes in, I wish I had an example. When a patient comes in and they enroll into the study, informed consent uh, uh, you know happens, and. At that point, we start collecting demographics, height, weights, blood pressure, temperature, baseline um, data, right? Baseline, exactly. Baseline data. What medications are you taking? What comorbidities do you have? Have you ever had any surgery? When were those surgery dates? So all of this information for Ventavia specifically, but it's different because the, the clinical trial data collection process is not standardized. So one site may collect it electronically or one site may collect all of those data points on paper. Ventavia collects those on paper. <clears throat> so every thing that happens during the clinical trial visit is, is written down. And then that written information is then transcribed electronically to an online platform or system for Pfizer. So what happens after that data is entered into Pfizer's electronic data capture system, it's called EDC, someone from either Pfizer or in this situation, ICON, should have come to the clinical trial site and looked at the paper and had up the electronic Data capture system at the same time and looked at that blood pressure. And let's just say the blood pressure was 120 over 80 written down on Ventavia's source paperwork. Okay. Then they would look at Pfizer's electronic data capture system and look at the blood pressure that was manually entered there. Let's say, for example, instead of what was written 120 over 80, whoever entered it, entered 120 over 08 instead. So 120 over 80 is original, the coordinator, whoever enters it, it's 120 over 08. That data that's wrong in uh, Pfizer's electronic data capture system is queried. So then the coordinator would go back. She would, you know, or he would look at the source and say, oh, you know, I made a transcription error, correct it in the electronic data capture system. And move on. So that, that, that's how Pfizer gets all of their data. They get it from what is entered into the system and what they query. So Pfizer has the capability to query any data point that's been captured um, at the study site level and, and make it anything they want. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah. 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 It, it gives them the opportunity <clears> to decide that post injection measurements are also going to be made. Uh, it gives them the ability to then query that information to, um, set the data a particular way, perhaps. perhaps. Is, is this the inference that that we're going for here?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And so that's what, you know, When I was mentioning earlier, the, the data that has been released, uh, uh, from Pfizer's data set from their electronic case report forms. I have copies of original site source that show different information. And I don't want to get into like exactly what that is because, you know, um, my attorney has that and, you know, we're, we're working on, you know, looking through all the data and it's, it's a long process,
0: there's also an element but. of potentially biasing whoever sits in the jury and things like that. Someone could then use that to say, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm, no, I won't ask you to, to dive into specifics on that, but just the thought alone that that's a possibility is um, fascinating <laughs> to say the least. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it's really, you know, I mean, I've talked to, I've talked to so many people and, and physicians and even those that are familiar with, with clinical trials in general don't understand a lot of them don't understand how the information is captured from, from the site level and, and how Pfizer actually gets that information. But that, that is, that is how, uh, for the Ventavia site specifically, everything's written on paper, then it's transcribed electronically into Pfizer's database. There should be a check, uh, to make sure that that data matches. I guess that didn't happen because the data doesn't match. Not in, not in every, not in, not in everything that I've looked at, but there are.
0: Significant proportion. Would you say?
1: Yes. And, and the very, maybe not even a, a, um, a significant proportion because there hasn't been a lot of data released yet, but in just the very first patient that I happened to look at and, and have actual information on, it was a serious, serious adverse event. It was a serious adverse event that, um, happens after the patient, the patient was enrolled into the placebo group initially got both of the injections and was unblinded at the time that Pfizer told them they should be and got the injection. And a few weeks later actually was hospitalized with um, hepatic injury. So, um, I mean, that's, that was the very first thing that, that I looked at and that I saw, and as I'm going through these Pfizer electronic case report forms and, and looking at what data I do have, um, then match. It doesn't match. And there was also in that, in that same case report form, you know, they have data managers and these data managers are, are looking through, you know, all these case report forms and, and looking at terminology, for example, uh, diagnosis. And there was even, uh, in a, in a query that was issued to the site for Ventavia to change the diagnosis that the patient was given. <laughs> mm-hmm so the patient was discharged with a diagnosis that diagnosis was captured in Pfizer's electronic data capture system and the data manager in reviewing that information asked the site to change the diagnosis that's Mm -hmm. that it blows your mind right
0: fraud Flat out fraud.
1: You know, I mean, I I have seen, I'm not, I'm not defending, I'm not defending Pfizer or their data managers or or any anyway, but that, 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 that has, I've seen that before, you know, for there to be um, a clarification maybe, or, you know, a change, but when you have a diagnosis as you're released from the hospital, it's just that, that you just, you just don't do that. Um, I'm not saying that I don't even know what I'm saying. I, I just, I, it, it is, there's something new every day that, that blows my mind. It really does shocks me. And I just need someone to look at this data. I have, you know, so much information that, that is on the um, public domain, other information that's not. And it's hard to work and take care of kids and look at all this data. And, and to, but to be honest, it's not my job. It's just the job of the FDA. Is, it's, yes, it's literally and the their DOJ job. It's in at the this title. Point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it, it is literally their job to regulate the industry, mm-hmm. to check the trial data, to check that things are as they seem and there isn't anything untoward going on. And the fact but
1: that- But Pfizer's done that. Pfizer said, they've, they've said publicly that they've you know uh, investigated the allegations and there was nothing that um, would affect the integrity of the data, which is a lie. I it's, mean, a blatant, it's, it's a blatant lie. It does affect the data.
0: People listening to this might be familiar with uh, the show Dexter. Sending Dexter to investigate one of his own murder scenes. Of course, he's going to say that. Oh, I you know,
1: remember. I remember. Yeah, that yeah. Show. If, yeah.
0: Yeah. You're essentially sending <laughs> the guys who are responsible for it in the first place to investigate the the trial site, and I, I don't know if conflict of interest springs to mind, but that's a word that springs to mind for me, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah,
1: that's why. That's why I said. You know, from this, I want, you know, those responsible to be held accountable and there has got to be some change in the the regulatory process the approval process who's allowed to approve these who's allowed to sit on boards who's who's part of these you know not just with the vaccine but speaking about the vaccine these you know vaccine experts who you know have asked to to give an opinion on whether or not this vaccine is safe for anyone, but not to know, but maybe, maybe they do know, maybe they don't know, but there are serious questions about this clinical trial. And I just, I watched how just quickly these trials were started, how quickly they were run, how, um, I mean, Pfizer was in a race to be number one to get their vaccine to market. So I can imagine that if this type of thing happened at Ventavia, that is there a possibility that it happened at more clinical trial sites? And I just, from in my heart, like, I really think that probably more than likely this happened at other clinical trial sites and for, for Pfizer to only inspect nine out of the 153 clinical trial sites that were participating in the study i'm shocked again
0: less than 10 yeah. percent there's a lot of people walking through a lot of doors and they're only deciding to cherry pick what they're going to look at there's a lot of things that baffle the mind um to, to say the least that you know It leaves a lot to be desired in the approach that has been taken at every level um, throughout the issues that you've had with Ventavia, Icon, and Pfizer with regards to the FDA's approach to this and unfortunately now the DOJ as well. And like you say,
1: they've failed. They failed us.
0: Absolutely. And like you say, it's not, you know, your word against theirs. It's not, you know brooke thinks xyz um brooke has evidence of x and y and z and exhibit a b c all the way to z and back again
1: one through 29 actually
0: <laughs> there we go no, no, i'm kidding
1: i'm kidding and that was just you know um there are 29 exhibits in my in my uh, lawsuit against them but that was back from January of, of 2021. Like I said, I've, I've accumulated more, more since then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that, that's, you know, is something, you know, again, my, my attorney is, is working on. So I have to, I have to give him a chance to yeah. get the yeah. rest out there, but I've just, um, excuse me. I'm just um, thankful for the opportunity to, to speak with you and, and to your wow. audience. And I, I really I, appreciate it. Sure. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> pardon me. I do get on Twitter and I try to answer as many questions as I, you know, that come to me for people wanting to understand. I I don't ever offer my opinion about whether or not someone should get the vaccine. That is a personal decision. And one that I think that anyone considering should talk to their own physician about, and whether you trust him or her, I mean, that's just, we open up this
0: pandora's box
1: exactly and i'm just not going there but if there are any questions about the clinical trials and what ventavia what pfizer and what icon have done i'm i'm happy to
0: to talk about it where can people find you on twitter
1: and my my handle is i am brooke jackson
0: handy fantastic brooke (laughs) i really really appreciate you giving us your time um and i wish you the best with the trial and everything going forward and uh, thank you very much for what you've done and what you continue to do and i hope that it inspires others to potentially make thank the you. same steps is there anything that you think at this point in time um what, what do you think people need to be aware of at this point in time, whether it's related to the vaccine or whether it's something else? Is there something that people need to start looking at or looking into?
1: That's tough. That's a tough question. I mean, I, since this has all kind of transpired, it's made me Open my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't realize have been happening for a long time. Hindsight's always 2020, right? Looking back, and this is just me. I'm healthy, I'm 40 years old. I do not have any underlying medical conditions, and I regret getting the vaccine. But again, hindsight's 2020. And I I was misled by so many mainstream media, FDA, CDC, those that I, I trusted. Mm. And yeah, I, 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 would have, I would have done a lot of things differently. Um, but the, I think that the number one thing is that, that I wouldn't have got a vaccine.
0: Given the right information. I think mm-hmm. is important. There.
1: I did so because of what I was told was, you know, going to keep me from getting COVID and was going to keep me from spreading that to other people. And, you know, I got it in, in January and I was still looking for a job and I made the assumption that I was going to be patient facing and maybe, you know, back in, in a hospital setting or working in <clears throat> transplant. I worked in transplant for many years and and that was very rewarding for, for me. So I, I, I thought that's kind of where I was going to go back, um, Go what I was going to go back to. And so I needed my vaccine and that turns out to be not the case. And yeah, that's, uh, I guess I'm going to have to really think about that and practice that answer because I just, again, I don't want people to to, to, to hear my story and, and think that I'm for or against or one-sided or the other, I really don't give a damn what people do. I just think that there needs to be full transparency. You need to have a, 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 an ability yeah. to make a, a decision on your health. That's, you know, I truthful.
0: think hearing everything that you said and I think for myself, listening to what you said just there as well, <clears throat> your biggest thing isn't for or against you've already said people should make an, uh, people should speak to their position. I think your, your biggest thing is informed consent. Yes. Um, from, from everything that I've heard about is mm-hmm. informed consent. It's getting all the information one way or the other and making the decision of what's best for you and potentially for those around you. Um, uh, and exactly. I agree with that. And I think for for myself as well, if there was a message that I'd want people to take away, it is inform yourself, speak to your doctor, get informed and make the decision that's right for you. And try not to be coerced one way or the other. Don't let me coerce you into not doing it or doing it. Don't let you do that. Don't let anyone else get informed. And we can only do that if the data is reliable,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: But thank you very much. So there's I really your advice. Yeah. Data not, re- not
1: reliable. Data is not reliable. There's your answer.